Well, if you want to take out your Bibles with me, let's open up again to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in chapter 17. Uh, Exodus chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to grab one from the seats in front of you. Uh, in those Bibles, you'll find our passage this morning on page 59. Uh, page 59. We're talking about banners this morning. Uh, flags, standards. Uh, banners, flags, these have played an important role in military history. Uh, I think about the book, The Red Badge of Courage, and how the teenager in that book, Henry Fleming, goes from being a fearful runaway soldier to a courageous fighter. And when the color sergeant is killed in the midst of the battle, Fleming takes up the flag and he leads his regiment against the enemy. How many times in the history of war has a soldier lifted up his eyes amidst the smoke and the agony and seen his banner raised and found the will to keep going and to keep fighting? In the early first century, while Jesus was walking the earth in Israel, three Roman legions were ambushed in the Teutoburg Forest by the local Germanian people. Uh, Roman legions were not trained for forest fighting, and so they were massacred by those local Germanic peoples. And the three Roman standards, one for each legion, were lost. Uh, these standards were held high in the midst of a battle as the rallying point for the troops. And they were seen as so important that in 16 AD, the Roman general Germanicus led his troops in a revenge mission to kill the indigenous Germanian people and to recover those lost standards. It was a horrific slaughter of the Germanians, and two of the three uh, Roman standards were recovered. And when word made it back to Rome that General Germanicus had recovered two of the three lost flags, lost standards, uh, he became an immediate celebrity. Uh, probably the most famous American story in this regard is the story of the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, it was 1814. The War of 1812 was continuing to rage on. British warships had come into Baltimore Harbor, and they were raining down cannonballs on Fort McHenry. Uh, just weeks before, Washington, D.C. had been attacked. Uh, the British had burned down the Capitol building, the Treasury building. Even the White House had been burnt down. A week before this bombardment in Baltimore, uh, Francis Scott Key had boarded one of these British ships to try and get a friend of his released by the British soldiers. And he succeeded in his mission. They were going to release his friend, but... Because now he and his friend knew of an upcoming surprise attack on Fort McHenry, they were forced to stay on the British ship until the attack was over. So Key, uh, a lawyer and a hymn writer, we sing some of his hymns often on Sunday nights. <clears throat> He's on this British ship watching the American fort as it is under attack. 
Uh, Francis Scott Key later wrote, It seemed as though Mother Earth had opened up and was vomiting, shot and shell, in a sheet of fire and brimstone. Uh, From his vantage point on that British ship, it certainly appeared to Key that the British were going to take the fort. But when the sun began to rise, by the dawn's early light, Key saw that the American flag was still flying over that fort. The British had been defeated, and the Americans had prevailed. He wrote a poem about the incident called The Defense of Fort McHenry, and today we sing it as our national anthem, and we call it the Star-Spangled Banner. Why am I talking about flags? Why am I talking about banners this morning? It's because I want us to understand the significance of Exodus 17, verse 15, where we read, And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. What is the banner that we continue to look to as we fight the good fight? Where do we as Christians find strength and encouragement and will in this life? What is the rallying point, the hope and the cause of Christians from all nations? It is the Lord, Yahweh, the great I Am. God is our banner. This is a truth that is first taught here in the early pages of the Bible, but it gets repeated and it gets deepened as the Bible goes on. It's it's a truth of great importance. The Lord is our banner. Um, I have a lot to say and a brief time to say it, so we're going to move quickly. But first, let's read Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. This is the very word of Almighty God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow... I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I have three main points I want to make this morning. Here they are in advance. Number one, we are at war. Number two, the victory is the Lord's. And number three, the Lord is our banner. And I hope and pray you will find encouragement as God speaks to us from this passage. So number one, we are at war. 
Uh, Let's start with Israel. Uh, Israel has just been delivered out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And instead of heading to the promised land as expected, God has been leading them in the opposite direction. He's been leading them into the interior of the Sinai Peninsula. God has a plan to meet with his people in a special way at a mountain called Horeb or Sinai. Right now, the people of Israel are close to Sinai. They're they're almost there. They're at a place nearby called Rephidim. Everybody say Rephidim. Depending on how you translate certain words, the number of the people of Israel is anywhere from 40,000 to 2 million people. Either way, this is a very large group of people. And so they have been traveling through the desert in stages. One tribe departs camp here and moves to the next camp, and then the next tribe moves, and then the next tribe moves. So they're traveling in stages. And rather than all of Israel arriving at Rephidim at the same time, the people of Israel are arriving over a period of days. Already, the issue of drinking water has arisen, and God has miraculously provided. But now another problem comes, and it's a human problem this time. It's the Amalekites. The Amalekites are cousins of the Israelites, Uh, They are descended from Amalek, grandson of Esau. Uh, Remember the rivalry between Jacob, later called Israel, and his brother Esau? Well, what we have in this passage is Jacob and Esau fighting again, except this time it's the descendants of Jacob versus the descendants of Esau. Uh, The Amalekites were a nomadic people, so they, they moved around the desert in their tents. And it seems that they largely made their living by controlling the trade routes and the oases in the desert. If you wanted to pass through the desert peacefully, you had to deal with the Amalekites. The Israelites were a prime target for the Amalekites. Uh, First, there was that family history that may have contributed to the animosity and the hostility and the, the whole situation. But second, remember... Israel is traveling through the desert with a great deal of treasure. Remember, when when Israel was coming out of Egypt, God moved the hearts of the Egyptians to give the Israelites their gold and their silver and many precious items. And so here is a nation traveling through the desert with riches. And then third, the Israelites are not at all hardy, sturdy travelers. This is an entire nation of people, old men, old women, young children, babies. They're carrying their very lives on their back. They're they're leading their flocks and their animals along the way. This is a very vulnerable group of people. In Deuteronomy 25, this is 40 years later, Moses will remind the people of Israel about this incident. And as he does so, he sheds some light on Amalek's attacks. Moses says then, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. How he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. 
In other words, Amalek did not attack Israel with a a full-on assault. No, just the opposite. Amalek was ambushing the stragglers. Amalek was coming behind the people of Israel, those those last people who were trying to finish this journey uh, from the wilderness of sin into Rephidim, perhaps the very old, perhaps the very young, the very uh, frail and sick and overburdened. These were the ones that Amalek attacked. In fact, we know that the Amalekites had domesticated camels, and they would often use their camels in surprise attacks. Did you know that a camel can run up to 45 miles per hour? That camels are faster than horses. And Amalekites were famous for what they could do in their surprise attacks with their camels. And so the Amalekites were a very formidable foe. And so Moses, seeing what's going on, hearing about these attacks at the tail end of the group coming in, he he tells Joshua, gather some men who can go out and fight the Amalekites. Now, this passage is the very first time that Joshua appears in the Bible. Uh, Joshua's name is the Old Testament name for Jesus. Uh, Joshua, Yeshua, his name means God saves. Remember, uh, the angel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Old Testament Joshua, it means salvation or God saves. I've always wondered what it was like for Jesus as a young boy reading the Old Testament and seeing there a book with his name on it, right? Joshua was the name of Jesus. So Jesus, there's a book in the Old Testament with Jesus' name on it. And in that book, there's a man with his name who leads God's people into the promised land. I always thought how that must have shaped his understanding of who he was to be. Joshua would prove to be a great leader. Uh, Joshua would be a shadow of Jesus himself, the, the captain of our salvation who leads us into the ultimate promised land. Now, Israel did not have a standing army. Uh, they haven't even been made an official nation yet. That won't happen till, till Sinai. And even afterwards, uh, once they've become an official nation, Israel will not have a standing army. So Joshua is having to go tribe to tribe and just recruit men to come fight the Amalekites. And frankly, from a human perspective, the Israelites don't really stand much of a chance. They're travel weary. They're untrained. Do you think the Egyptians trained Israelites to fight? No, they didn't want their slaves fighting. They didn't want their slaves able to to go into combat against them. So these were untrained men. It's interesting, when Moses' arms are down and God is not interceding on behalf of Israel, the Israelites are losing. (laughs) The Amalekites are the stronger foe. The Amalekites, in any humanly speaking kind of way, should win this fight. Friends, we need to understand that the Christian life is a life at war. Uh, Everything that we're reading here in Exodus is instructing us about our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, Israel crossing the Red Sea and being saved from Pharaoh is a picture of our conversion. Remember, Pharaoh wore the sign of the serpent on his crown. Israel's slavery to, to Pharaoh was a picture of our slavery to Satan and to sin. But just as God miraculously delivered Israel from Egypt... So God has miraculously delivered us from our slavery to Satan and sin. 
we have now been made free in Jesus Christ as Christians. We've, we've been made right with God. We're a saved people. We're a rescued people. We're a delivered people. But just like the people of Israel in Exodus, we're not in the promised land yet. <laughs> now that we're saved from our former slavery, we are in the wilderness. And we are making our way towards the promised land. And this period of sanctification, this period of following Jesus in this life, this is our wilderness. And your life's going to look different than my life. God has unique trials for you to overcome. He has unique trials for me to overcome. But together, we're walking through the wilderness as a redeemed people towards the promised land. And just like Israel's experience in the wilderness, we too will be called to fight. We too are called to engage in battle. Who are our enemies in the wilderness of the Christian life? Are we fighting the Amalekites? Are our enemies the secularists of the world or the atheists or the Muslims or the Hindus? Are those the enemies that we've been called to fight? Are our enemies those who would restrict our religious freedom? Are our enemies those who would mock the name of Christ? Who are we fighting against as Christians? Ephesians 6, 10-13, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the Muslims. Is that what it says? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the secularist who make fun of your faith. No. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Did you hear that? You hear it clearly? Right? The crusades, Christians fighting Muslims in the name of Jesus. That was not the kind of fight we've ever been called to be in. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Our battles in the Christian life are spiritual battles. Our souls have real enemies, but those enemies are not other people. If other people come against you, it's because they are pawns in the hands of the flesh and the devil in the world. It's those three, the flesh, the devil, and the world. It's, it's those three that form the unholy trinity that is your enemy. And how do we fight this fight? Do we fight with swords or guns? We fight by humbling ourselves. It's, it's the opposite of what you would think, isn't it? <laughs> we fight by bringing ourselves low. We fight by cultivating love and joy and peace and self-control. We, we fight by denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and giving of ourselves to serve others. We fight the way Jesus taught us to fight, by being made a servant. That's how you defeat the devil. That's how you defeat your fleshly pride. That's how you defeat the, the ways of the world. And Mount Hermon, make no mistake about it. 
This is a blood-earnest fight. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Yes, Jesus was speaking with hyperbole, but his point is that the battle we are in is a dead serious battle. And if you do not fight, you will be swept away by the world in your flesh. If you do not fight, your faith will prove fickle and false, and you will not stand. Christians who do not understand that they are in a battle, Christians who do not fight, do not make it to the promised land. Those who follow Jesus Christ follow Him into battle. Battle against the sin of our own hearts. Battle against unbelief and battle against disobedience and battle against self-worship. Mount Hermon, we need to keep this wartime mindset. In wartime, people don't act like they do during peacetime. Piper gives the example of the Queen Mary. Uh, During peacetime, the Queen Mary was a luxury liner for the wealthy. It was a very fancy ship. But when World War II began, suddenly the Queen Mary became a carrier of troops. In peacetime, the bunks were stacked three high. But in wartime, the bunks were stacked seven high. During peacetime, travelers dined with 18-piece plate settings. During wartime, the food was rationed, and you only received a fork and a knife. Friends, we make different decisions. We have different priorities when we realize that we are in a wartime against sin and the devil. Think about the nations. Think about how we have been called to serve King Jesus in the cause that we just sang about. The cause of seeing the nations rescued from their slavery to darkness. Again, Piper says in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. And I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call this earth home. Before you know it, I am calling luxuries needs, and I'm using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what men can do and not what God can do. He said, it is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again towards a wartime mindset. The call of Christ is a call to rest in His love. There is a sense in which the Christian life is a life of rest, a life of refreshment, a life of of peace. And yet at the same time, the Christian life is a life of fighting against the powers of darkness, both within and without. We are at war. Second, more briefly, we see that the victory is the Lord's. Uh, In our passage, there can be no doubt that the only reason that Israel defeats the Amalekites is that God gives them success. We have Moses standing on top of a hill. Moses is overlooking the battle. What he has in his hands is that staff of God. Remember, 
This was just a simple shepherd's staff. This was the regular old shepherd's staff that Moses had with him when God spoke to him out of the burning bush. But God has now caused that staff to turn into a serpent. God has worked through that staff to turn the Niles of the waters of the Nile into blood. Pharaoh and his Egyptian wise men had ornate staffs, much more elegant staffs that supposedly contained the powers of the gods. Moses' staff looked like something silly compared to theirs. And yet this is what God had chosen to work through. Uh, When something is accomplished with this humble staff, there can be no doubt it is God who is doing it. And so when Moses holds the staff up high, you can kind of picture him holding it with both hands on top of the mountain. When Moses holds the staff up high, Israel defeats the Amalekites. But when Moses' arms grow weary and his arms begin to drop and the staff comes down, the tide of the battle turns. And so a stone was brought for Moses to sit on. Aaron and Hur come up to help his, hold up his arms with their own strength. And the result was that Joshua and the people of Israel overwhelmed the people of Amalek and defeated them. Real quickly, Hur is a new name for us. Uh, he was one of the leading elders of the people of Israel. Uh, Hur was from the tribe of Judah, and it's important to know Hur because his grandson is important. Uh, Hur's grandson is Bezalel, and he's going to become the chief craftsman in the construction of the tabernacle. What we see in Aaron and Hur holding up the arms of Moses is that we need the strength of others if we are to have victory in our battle against sin. We need to be humble enough to lean on the strength of others if we're going to have success in defeating worldliness and fleshliness and the devil's temptations. If we try and be Lone Ranger Christians, if we try and seek to win the battles of the Christian life on our own, we will become weary, we will become burnt out, we will run out of strength. The Christian life was not meant to be lived this way. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. All right, so how do we we take care against that? How do we keep ourselves from having a heart that grows cold, a heart that begins to fall away? Hebrews 3, 13, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When God warns about our proneness to unbelief, when God warns us about how we can fall away, He points us to each other as the cure. God will keep His people saved and He keeps them saved through one another. I need you. You need me, and we are to continue to help each other, to spur each other on in trusting Christ in the midst of the trials before each one of us. I need your prayers. You need mine. We need each other's counsel. We need each other's love. We need each other's words of encouragement and admonishment. Hebrews 10, 25, 26, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and 
all the more as you see the day drawing near. (laughs) In other words, I need you more today than I did yesterday. (laughs) You need me more today than you did yesterday. As we get closer to the coming of Christ, as we get closer to our own final breaths, the more we need each other. It is through our gathering together that we have opportunity to encourage one another. Uh, Even this morning, you have loved me as you have sung the most important truths in the world into my ears. Uh, We encourage one another as we hear from God's Word together, as we pray together, as we worship together. And then we can encourage each other as we catch up in the hallway, as we share prayer requests in the Sunday school class. And let us consider, that is, let us take time to ponder how we might better stir up one another to love and good works when we meet like this on Sunday morning. What can we do differently? in our interactions on Sunday morning, so that we leave this place more stirred up to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the fighting men of Israel looking up to that hill and seeing Moses holding the staff of God up high? Can you imagine the troops looking up that hill and they see Aaron on one side and her on the other side holding up Moses' arms? And when they saw the staff of God lifted high, it thrilled their hearts because it meant this. It meant God was fighting for them. When they saw the staff, they found their courage. They had an assurance from God that He was going to provide and give them the victory. Their strength in the fight came from their faith in God. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? Friends, just as they fought knowing that the victory was the Lord's, so we also fight our fights knowing that the victory is the Lord's. It is a guaranteed victory. The cross stands up before us as a sure sign that the fatal blow to Satan has already been delivered. And because we are spirit-indwelt believers, the fatal blow to our flesh, the fatal blow to worldliness has already been given. There will be a day when Christ will come back or when we die, whichever comes first, when you and I will be made completely holy. That's guaranteed by the Savior in whom we trust. So we don't fight against greed or covetousness or lust or pride. We don't fight like wimps. We don't fight our tendency to grumble and groan and complain as if we're just overwhelmed by these temptations. No, we've been set free from our bondage to sin. We really can see great freedom from the sins in our lives in this life. We can make real progress against sin in this life. And then the end is guaranteed. The the victory is guaranteed. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. Your sanctification was guaranteed. We're fighting the final battles, the residual battles. But the main battle, the one that decides the war, it has already been fought. It has already been won. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are on the winning side. The victory is the Lord's. And so we come to our final point. The Lord is our banner. Uh, Look again at verses 14 through 16, very quickly. Verses 14 through 16. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book, recited in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We see here that those who make themselves the enemies of God's people will find that God is their enemy as well. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God bring judgment on the Amalekites because they attacked His people. Anybody who would do harm to a child of God needs to take notice. It is no small thing to abuse or persecute a child of God. We also see here that Moses built an altar as a memorial to remind the people of what God did on this day. It's a memorial altar. It's a reminder. And the name of the altar is the Lord is my banner. Who do we look to and rally around as we fight the Christian fight? We look to the Lord. We we find our courage and our hope and our strength and our joy as we look to our God, as we remember who He is for us, as we remember what He's done for us, as we commune with Him and we throw up all our needs to Him. And then in the strength that He provides, we face Monday and all that it brings against us. Later in Scripture, we hear some really wonderful things about this banner. Uh, The Lord is our banner, and yet we read that the Lord has established a banner. Psalm 60, verse 4, God, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. In other words, when we're under attack, anybody feel under attack this morning? (laughs) Right? When you are under attack, God has set up the banner of himself for us, a refuge, a place to run, to find courage and comfort. In the Song of Solomon we read of Solomon's love for his bride, and it's, it was understood by ancient Israel as a picture of God's love for the nation of Israel. And we read there that God's banner over his people is love. It is the love of God more than anything else that is our hope and joy as we live this life. The awesome reality that God has a deep, incomprehensible all-surrounding, warm, and rich love for me. For me. That's what keeps our chins up. That's what keeps us fighting. That's what keeps us going. His banner over us is love. And then in Isaiah 11, verse 10, it just gets better because we find that this banner of God's love has a name. Because we're told there of a day when a root of Jesse will come as a banner for all peoples. We're told that the nations will come to this banner. And we are told that they will rest in him and find him to be glorious. Mount Hermon, according to the prophet Isaiah, Jesus Christ is the banner of God's love set up for us. Jesus Christ, the Lamb who gave His life for us, is the champion to whom the nations come. When we look to Christ, we find God's love for us. When we look to Christ, we see how He has crushed Satan's head. When we look to Christ, we see how people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are being won by the gospel. They're being won by His love. Here is the great banner to which we look and find comfort and courage. It is the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
He is our banner. Unbeliever, will you look to this banner this morning? Will you look to the love of God in Jesus Christ and be saved? Right now, the bow of God's righteous anger against your sin is pulled back. The bow is about to to be released and the arrow of God's wrath is headed towards you. But he has established a banner, as Psalm said, where you can run and find safety. And that banner's name is Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believer, are you rallying around Jesus this morning? Can you say, He is my hope and He is my peace? He is my courage for Monday. He is my strength for Tuesday. He is my resolve for Wednesday. Or could it be that your eyes have been taken off of him? Are you perhaps looking more at how scary the Amalekites look in your life? (laughs) That's easy to do, right? We're not looking at the banner. We're just seeing the scary Amalekites. Don't, Don't do that. Stop being worried and afraid of the trials and temptations in your life. See the banner of the cross over your head. Look to Jesus and live in victory. Friends, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.